If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Dad Vengers podcast, sponsored by Tonka, because being tough is all about getting out and playing. I'm Nigel Clark, TV presenter and performer, and I'm also host of this wonderful podcast where we explore different aspects of parenting and hone in on the dad point of view. And mums, grandparents, carers, we want you involved in the conversation too. So let's talk, let's laugh, let's share the things we find difficult and become the type of dads we really want to be. Today's guest is a fellow advocate for supporting dads, having set up the online platform Music Football Fatherhood after going through a very traumatic introduction to being a dad. We're so pleased to have him here. Uh, Welcome, Elliot Ray. Hey, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Dude, glad you could be here. Glad you could be here. I think it's important to hear your story, what you're doing, all of that. You're, you're, you're a... You're a inspirational dad, definitely. Oh, thank you. Well, the fact that you invited me back after the IG Live, you know, I must have done something right. <laughs> Dude, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. That was great that you could come along to, to one of our dad chats with our yeah. kind of like dad vengers community. That's where our core peeps are at. But I think your, your story needs to get out to a wider range of people, which is why you're here on this podcast. So let's go all the way back. Uh, let's start with you growing up your parents emigrated here yeah Mm. where were they from so my dad's from grenada in the west indies caribbean and my mum's from an island not far away from grenada saint vincent um but they met each other in wembley (laughs) in wembley yeah um my dad actually came over when he was 14 and my mum came over when she was seven and my mum um they lived in Tottenham, in Hackney. Sorry, they lived in Hackney in Stoke Newington, and then they moved to Tottenham. And my dad's um, family came to to Wembley, where I grew up in West London. Nice. I mean, not far from from where I'm based, to be fair, because uh, Tottenham's down the road, uh, mm. and Wembley's down the other side. I'm sort of near the North Circular, so right okay. between both places that you've mentioned there. So, what was it like growing up with parents who'd immigrated, who, um, you know? were from uh, an ethnic background here in the UK at a time when things were a little bit different to now, well, arguably. It was, it was good. I had a, a good childhood. Um, in the area I grew up in and the school I went to, especially the secondary school, was just very mixed, to be honest. It had people from all different backgrounds um, in, terms of, in terms of race, in terms of class as well. 
And I'm, I'm really thankful for that, actually. I think what that meant is that, like, I was exposed to just a variety of different people. Yeah. And I think now that means I can generally find something in common with most people, to be honest, because I've been around, you know, the the, the worst and seen poverty and seen hardship. Yeah. Um, through just, you know, friends and family, but also been lucky enough to be around some people that are quite wealthy and I've, I've lived an, an, a good life. And I think my, I was always kind of in the middle somewhere. You know, my mum and dad were very hardworking. My dad never took a sick day off ever in his whole career. He yeah. never took a day off sick. So he was a very, he was very much a kind of hard worker. And, um, you know, when, when he came over from Grenada, it was, he always tells me that it was him and his, his brother, his younger brother, a couple of years younger, they, they, they shared the front room in, in the house. So that's, that, that was their bedroom. The front room downstairs was their bedroom. But my grandma always, always had like people over. So she would always have guests over and um, even during the week. So they, they would say they, they had to wait until the guests left. And to they get would pull to out bed. the sofa bed to go to bed <laughs> and had school the next day. <laughs> so, so when me and my sister had a, our own bedrooms, he was like, you know, you've got your own bedroom. I'm thinking, yeah, it doesn't everyone. <laughs> but for him, that was, that's a big deal, you know, we've got our own, yeah. our own bedroom. So but he was always like, you know, making sure that we took advantage of the opportunities that we had. And um, yeah, you know, I, I had a paper round. I've always worked. As soon as I had a national insurance number, I got a job in Iceland, the local supermarket. And yeah, just worked really hard. And I think that, that work ethic that my Back parents, then, wouldn't it have been called B-Jams or something back then? No, it was still Iceland. It was still Iceland. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> so wait, your dad was a very hard worker. Um, as a lot of men were at that time, you know, going out early, coming back late. Um, how present was he in the whole parenting journey with you and, and your siblings? Yeah, he was present. Um, he, I remember on a Wednesday he'd pick us up. I remember, I think he, I remember he, he got this comp, this red, I think it was a Cavalier, Ford Cavalier, this red car. See, my dad had a Ford Cavalier, uh, a Vauxhall Cavalier. Vauxhall, <laughs> Vauxhall Cavalier. Cavalier, that's it. Vauxhall Cavalier, and my dad's was yellow. <laughs> so yeah, he picked us up on a Wednesday and I always remember, oh my God, like dad's coming with the red car. Um, <laughs> and on a Wednesday he used to pick us up. So yeah, he was around. Obviously my mum was, my mum was part-time so she was like the main carer I guess but my dad was always around um he was a big presence so dad was around but specific days not a lot maybe not as much as you are with your kids now mm-hmm. yeah different time mm-hmm. different different way of doing things but he instilled things in you I'm, I'm assuming was he strict he was strict yeah <laughs> very, very strict yeah he was um traditional Grenadian man, I guess, you know. Um, yeah, from if you're from the Caribbean, you, you, you come with a different different set of rules, don't you? Yeah, and it's weird because there's obviously there are stereotypes around black dads and, and whatnot, but that generation, um, there was a certain type of strict man, you know, who um, they, they didn't play around. And hard work and manners, behaving yourself, that was, you know, it was a non-negotiable you know, your you manners, your pleases, your thank yous, your respect for your elders, um, the hard work, the integrity. 
you know, all that sort of stuff was, that was just the, the, the basics. That was the foundation. That wasn't anything to be celebrated. Yeah. That was just what, you know, my dad expected us to do. And um, it's a weird one because I think, I think um, I've taken a lot of that and I think I instill a lot of that. But at the same time, I'm definitely, as a dad, a lot more free. And um, I think with my daughter, I've got one daughter, she's five years old. I let her express herself a lot more than I was able to. And I think that's important, isn't it? Because you realise when you get older, you go into the workplace and stuff like that. You need to be able to express yourself. You need to be confident. Authority is, of course, important, but you can't be scared of authority. You know, you've got to, you've got to be able to chat and talk yeah. with authority, you know? And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's important. Yeah. I, so. I get that. I definitely get that. You talk about um, giving your, your little one expression and, and that whole side of things. Was your dad expressive uh, emotionally? Uh, did, how much did he show his love? Because that's another another thing that men from that generation maybe struggled with a little bit more. What was your dad like? Yeah, exactly as you say. You know, not not overly expressive of emotions. Um, didn't see any vulnerability, to be honest. Really. Yeah, because um, like for me, just to just put it out there and and show you where I'm coming from, because I think we come from the same place. I don't think I've ever heard my dad full out say I love you. Wow. I don't, I mean, I know he loves me. Don't, don't get me wrong. But mm. for him to come out with those words blatant, mm. that's a tough thing for him to do. Yeah, I don't think my dad, I don't think my dad has either, to be honest. See? <laughs> Yesterday he texted me and said, well done. And that was a big deal. Big deal. Because he saw me yeah. on TV and he said, well done. And that's like, that's massive. I've got yeah. a well done. That's big. <laughs> That's like testing the boundaries. We're getting emotional here. Exactly. It's a different generation, especially those Caribbean dads. I remember, I remember the first time he came to see me in Stomp. So this is like in the West End or something. Or maybe actually first time he might have come abroad when we were, we were touring or something. And he came to see the show and a sque- a squeezed some sort of nearly well done. Like, yeah, it's good. But there's a but. There was, all, there was always a little but there. But... You know, couldn't you have done this or that? couldn't you have done that? It's like, no, not really. Kind of, that's the way the show rolls. <laughs> where, where are your parents from? So my parents are Guyanese, both of them from Guyana, but met here in the UK. So yeah, mm. I know, I, I know where you're coming from. I've, mm. <laughs> I've lived a similar life. When you were young, let's say teenagers, did you have an experience with racism, with, with, uh, crime with anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I started to drive at 17. I got my driving license at 17. So I was first, I was the first to in my friends. So, you know, there'll be like five of us, black boys, just driving on a Saturday night through wherever. And, you know, every night we get stopped by the police three or four times. Just standard, you know, like, and you start realising, you're like, okay, cool. Why, why are you stopping me with no reason? Yeah. You know, and they're surprised when I have a license. I show them my license, they can't believe I've got a license and insurance, right? Like, but um, but yeah, we I get stopped by police all the time. Yeah. And 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 those sort of things, those things kind of happening. And then kind of getting involved with some of the wrong people and being in some situations I shouldn't have been in at all. But um, yeah, so I think from from those formative years, which I think being a black boy in London is quite hard to navigate. And I think it's, you know, if I I just thank God that I've had a strong dad at home actually who 
even though he wasn't there, obviously, when I'm out, he was always there in my mind, you know. So certain decisions that I was making, I always knew, what about my family? What about my dad? Like, I come from a good family, do you know what I mean? Like, great-grandparents, uncles are, you know, good people. And I didn't want to bring, me and my cousin didn't want to bring shame on the family. So having that strong background at home, it really does it does a lot. It informs your decisions, you know, and who you are. And I think it's so important for like young boys to have a strong dad at home who has that right balance of love, but also discipline to just try and guide you in the right direction, you know, and make sure you keep your integrity and your morals and certain things about you. And then, you know, and with luck as well. And then you kind of, you kind of get through those years, but it is hard for like, when I see young black boys in London and, you know that, you know, just sometimes going out, you're going to, whether it's the police, whether it's other boys, you know, there's, there's hazards around and it's not always easy for them. So they do need guidance and, and help and support. Did you ever have any life-changing experiences uh, growing up? Any threats to your life? Did you ever fear for your life? Mm. So there's one, there's one part I wrote about in the book. Um, yeah, being 19, you know, I said getting involved in some of the wrong people. I got to take responsibility. Some of it was my fault as well. Um, two different groups of people that didn't really like each other much. And I was in the middle and I was friends with them both and, and whatnot. And yeah, one particular incident where there was a lot of people from my school um, in the park this, this day. And this group thought I was involved with the other group and whatnot had happened. And, you know, they pulled out a gun and put it to my head and, yeah and i got like you know there was a scuffle and got beaten up and it was quite serious you know and and i remember that moment where you think oh my gosh like this person that is doing this i know he's a serious person this is not you know this person is a serious guy i know what he's done before like this could go the wrong way and in that moment you're not really not necessarily scared it's just kind of like you just you just you just it's always a weird kind of piece to be honest it's a weird kind of calm really like it's not all kind of panic it's a it's a it's a calm but that that moment the reason that 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 shaped me was not just the incident of like the shock of having a gun pulled out on you and threatening with your life I think for me over and above that it was the fact that there were quite a few people from my school um that were there at the time they weren't actually there but they were around the corner so a lot of people from my school were present it was a hot day you know, it was in the park. There was loads of people there, basically. And everyone had kind of knew what had happened. So for me, it was like a real thing of like, wow. A lot of people that I know, bring up when I was 19. You know, at that, at that age, you've got a big ego. Your reputation is very important to you. And something like that's quite embarrassing, to be honest. Like, forget the threat of my life. It was more like, I just feel embarrassed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That this happened. That is what was the bigger deal actually. Wow. And the fact that, you know, the weeks afterwards, leaving the house and feeling like everyone's laughing at you, you know, feeling like everyone's like, ah, oh, like that's, you know, um, and that, that took, that took a long time to overcome, to be honest. Um, Dude, it's, it's so strange that you say that because a lot of people are probably sitting at home thinking, okay, wait, hold on. The real moment right there would be like, not the embarrassment, but the, I've had a gun pulled on me. Shouldn't your friends be coming up to you saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Blah, blah, blah. Rather than 
look what happened to you, mate. You 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 stepped out of line at the wrong time, and and that's what happened to you. Because you, most people wouldn't think about the embarrassment side of things, but that's where mm-hmm. you're where you were, and that's the position you were in, right? Yeah, and a lot of time when you see these things happening, a lot of time that's the root cause is that something happens to someone, they feel like their ego is taking a hit, they're embarrassed, so now they go and retaliate, you know, and it's, a, and it's, it's that. It's, you've disrespected me. In front and of people. In front of people, and everyone knows, so I'm, I, need, I need to go and do this now. And that's how things escalate. And it could be something that starts quite small, but the disrespect is a massive thing, you know, for young people and... Your reputation at that age is everything and your ego is everything. And so for me, yeah, the overriding thing of just the shock of it had happened, it wasn't that. It was more just like, oh my gosh, like everyone knows, <laughs> you know, like everyone's seen it. If it happened in private where no one knew, maybe it wouldn't have had such a big impact on me. But it was a fact that there were people that I fought with friends that were there. Um, so that was, a, that was a really tough summer, to be honest. That was a really, really tough summer. And there was lots of nights that go, like just, just sitting at home thinking like what am I going to do you know what how what what am I going to do now there's some people saying you should retaliate and do x y or z Cleve wasn't going to ever do that but some people were saying we can go and do this that's just not me at all so that was never an option but what am I going to do how am I going to in what you feel like is your whole life has crumbled how do I continue now and so for me it was like okay cool I'm not going to fight you because I'm not that way inclined and I know who you are and that's not going to end. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that, <laughs> basically. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to like work really hard to make something of myself. And my like revenge is I'm going to show you that, okay, cool, you did this, but you haven't won, you know, and I'm going to be successful and you're going to see my success. And in years to come, you're going to look back and be like, oh, that's Elliot, he, you know. I pulled a gun those people. <laughs> exactly. Basically, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> probably says it now, to be fair. But yeah, not just a person, but the people around as well, you know, like who didn't stick up for me or didn't check if I was okay. And you know, maybe they were scared as well or whatever. But I was like, cool, don't worry. I'm going to work really hard. And I think, you know, through, through, through that, that has been a lot of my motivation. I don't know if it's, it's good or not. I talked to my wife about it a lot. And I think it's becoming not so much now, but in my twenties, early thirties, it was, it was a motivation. It was like, you know, I'm a hardworking person anyway, but like, I need to prove to people that I'm, that I'm going to make something of myself. So that, that increased your work ethic. I think it did. Yeah. We are so happy to have Tonka as our sponsor this series. Basic Fun's Tonka collection is packed full of fun vehicles for kids who want to get out and get tough with their toys. So dads, you've got no excuse. Grab that mighty steel classic truck. It's time to head to the sandpit for some tough play. So you had your good 20s, you got to 30s, you settled down with your wife. Time to have children. Um, She gets pregnant and it gets to, you know, closer to birth time. And then you have Quite a traumatic experience, don't you? To introduction to becoming a father. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So the pregnancy was all good. It was all smooth. <clears throat> Obviously, my wife was having like you know symptoms of pregnancy, but it was nothing to worry about. It was nothing out of the ordinary or anything like that. But eight and a half months in, 
after a kind of routine check for something else, we got a letter. I remember it was like this, this, it was like, you know, like a, like a restaurant pamphlet <laughs> come through the door. <laughs> I thought, was this a new chicken shop or something? <laughs> like 2.99 chicken and chips deal it was it, and it was the hospital and it was like a note saying basically you know we found fruit bee strep which is a a common infection i think it's i think like one in four pregnant women will carry this infection it's very common um normally it's not harmful to the baby but if the baby contracts it it's very serious one in ten babies die another one in ten will get a lifelong disability from contracting meningitis so obviously we were worried. We we're like, I've never heard of this fruit bee strep. What's this? We yeah, did yeah. our research, and then obviously when you do research, you worry even more because you find out how serious, serious yeah, it is. Yeah. So, um, so basically the solution to it is you give you get intravenous intravenous antibiotics during labour. So I remember the labour started about four a.m. in the morning on Saturday morning. Went to the hospital after a few hours. You know, dilations and contractions got got bigger and and um. They started the antibiotics and we were in this kind of like side room, birthing room, which was quite nice. Had a birthing pool. It was quite calm, serene, cool. It was all going fine. Um, and after a few hours, I think they were finding like our baby's heart rate was going up and down and whatnot. So they were a bit worried. So they said, okay, we're going to take you into the, into the actual labor ward. Cool. So we go in there and that's when it, I guess it got quite serious because they were yeah our baby's heart rate was was dropping my wife's blood pressure was going up and down um the labor didn't seem to be moving on kind of just kind of stagnating wife was in a lot of pain that lasted for a good 20 hours and now we're coming to like sunday morning there's been a couple of heart rate scares where the midwife would just push this button and then before you know it there's 10 doctors in the room yeah, yeah. You're thinking, where have you come from? Were you just waiting outside? Like, literally, I was like, where have you come from? Yeah. Were you just chilling outside the room? But yeah, <laughs> press the button and literally within 10 seconds, they're just all running in. And it, I remember it, it felt like casualty. When you're seeing that happening, casualty is literally like that. Like, they run in and then they, they check in and they, they put like something else in my wife's belly where they're checking the heart rate and all these sort of things. So that happened, I think, twice. Anyway, it comes to the, comes to the end where the baby's kind of coming out now. And it's taken, it's taken a while, the baby's not really coming out. So the doctors are getting concerned. They get a, a von Schuss, which is an instrument you use as assisted delivery to bring the baby out. Um, so bear in mind now, it's like 4 a.m. Sunday morning. We've been up since like you know, Friday night. And when my daughter comes out, you know, you know babies are supposed to cry and be full of life. But you know, she's grey, she's not breathing properly, she's just... And she's barely alive, basically. Um, at the same time, my wife is losing a lot of blood. So the doctors are like, you know, out of nowhere, again, there's probably like seven, eight doctors around my wife, tending to her, trying to stop blood flow. They're thinking I'm going to have to do transfusion, all that sort of stuff. And then on the other side, my daughter's there, and there's doctors walking on her. They're, they're trying to suck fluid out of her windpipe and stuff, that sort of thing and and yeah it's just like that moment where you're just thinking wow like you feel like you're in a film you're in, in a movie somewhere that like you don't need to be basically you feel like i was i remember i always feel like i was just watching it i felt like i was the a fly on the wall literally i don't feel like i was there 
it's more like you're watching yourself and you're just watching it all. And it's like literally you're watching a movie. It felt like that. Like you're watching a film and just kind of looking. You're not saying anything. I don't know if I was breathing. You're just kind of watching and thinking like this wasn't a part of the plan. You know, this wasn't expected. No one, no one, this wasn't, this wasn't a part of the script kind of thing. Like what's going on? Yeah. Thank God my wife, my baby daughter um, started breathing again and they were like, okay, cool. She has to go to intensive care. They think she's contracted this infection. Um, so they put her in this incubator. And I remember the doctor said to me, like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go? Or do you want to save your wife? And I'm like, okay, I better, I better go. Do you know what I mean? Like, my daughter's like yeah. five minutes old by this point. And I think that's when... <laughs> awful choice to have to make, just like... Yeah, uh, and in rushed as well. As well, it's just like, mm. what do you do? Anyway, carry on. Yeah, and I think at that moment you really realise that, like, as soon as your baby comes out, you're a parent. <laughs> like, literally, it doesn't start the next day; it starts straight away. Like, literally, you're a parent, you're a dad now, and your responsibilities start now. You have a responsibility. So yeah, I remember I said to my wife, like, you know, I'll be back. And I remember walking away thinking, she's in a bad way, man. Do you know what I mean? Like, the doctors were worried, and you're thinking. So that moment where you're thinking, like you don't want to think it, but you're thinking, am I going to come back to my wife? Do you know what I mean? Because she's in a bad way and they're worried about her. So um, I remember walking down this this corridor now, this, and I wrote, it's so vivid, these white walls, this long corridor. Walking down this corridor now. And I think for the first time in my adult life, just feeling completely helpless and just feeling completely helpless. Like, literally, like a child. I feel like a child. And I remember, I was, calling, I was trying to call my mum. There's no reception. There was no reception at the time. But I feel like a baby. Like a child. I feel like, um, you know, that toddler feeling where you just, you know, you're helpless and situation, you can't do anything about what's going on. I felt like that. I felt like, like a baby. And we're walking around this long hall and we got to the NICU, which is intensive care, neonatal intensive care. And there was a woman there, one of the nurses. I remember she just looked at me. <laughs> I can't remember if she shook me or not, but she looked at me dead in the eye and she was like, you need to, you need to be present. Like, <laughs> you need to wake up. <laughs> you need to wake Elliot, up. Elliot, you need to... <laughs> she might, you might not even remember it. She might have slapped you. She might have been like... <laughs> Baby, it felt like wake a slap. Up. <laughs> it felt like a slap. It felt like she had slapped me. And I was like, literally that was the moment I was like, I'm sure she's, she's seen it before. So I'm sure... Yeah, of course, like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> So I think she knew what she was doing, but it was like bringing me back. And at that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm here. Like, I've got to be present. I can't just be like drifting through this. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not a passenger. I've got to engage with it. Like, this is happening. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Get on with it. Like, you have a role here. So I really appreciate that. Um, that's what I needed. And then they started like giving my daughter antibiotics, why she had loads of wires in her and whatnot, she's an incubator, like, and then they're explaining what it is and the doctors are consulting. So I remember just sitting there for a little while, like, once I'd finished doing what they were doing, it was just in the incubator and they were monitoring, it was connected to all these machines and whatnot, and I remember just sitting in there. And um, this time it's like five in the morning, so there's no one else. There's lots of babies in there. Basically, NICU, there's loads of babies in incubators. There's no other parents at this time, at this stage. And you know, we're, we're just sitting there. 
and they've got a few nurses around and stuff like that. What's going on? Um, and maybe after, I don't know how long it was, half an hour, an hour, I'll go back to see my wife and she's, she's okay. She's lying down. She's, she's there. And just, yeah, I remember she was awake and I was saying to her, yeah, I was just with, I was in, in, in a NICU and trying to explain with her what has happened. So how long did you have to, uh, to be going to NICU and, and having those consultations and, and all of that with your daughter? How long did it all last? So yeah, so that happened for two weeks and, and with GBS basically, like with any infection, the antibiotics work to reduce it. Um, but there were times when the infection marker was going up and they weren't and it was supposed to be going down, so it was quite worrying. Or it was going down, that was good. So it was like, you know, a couple of days we had good news and a couple of days bad news. And that was a bit of a roller coaster, but overall the doctors, you know, it's quite a quite a common infection, so the doctors weren't overly concerned about it. You know, I think they still had belief it would be okay. So even though it was a difficult two weeks um, and it was an up and down, we felt like it was going to be positive, I think, for the most part. And to be honest, I didn't really, I think I didn't think too much. I was in business mode. I was just in protect your family, advocate for your family. I don't think I really thought too much about worst case scenarios yeah i didn't to be honest i didn't there's no time every two hours there's someone in your room taking <laughs> but there's no time to, to think so it was more just about doing what you got to do um and then we got the good news after two weeks that we could go home which is amazing but then crazily like a couple of hours later my daughter just developed this bump in the back of her head quite a big bump out of nowhere just after we got the news that we could go home so that was, that's when it, I feel like it got serious. Like when the, when the doctors are worried and bearing in mind for those two weeks, like in that room, we would have to go and get our food, want a cup of tea, we'd go to the canteen, which is in the labor ward, but you know, we go and get the thing or whatever. And the staff, they knew us by now, you know, it was like we're part of the furniture, whatever. When we got that news, that's when we saw a special pediatric doctor came in another hospital to come see us at a meeting and the midwives were worried you know they came in we didn't have to go and get our dinner that day they came and brought our dinner to us they came and changed our bed sheets they so came and something make was us, different. yeah they were wor- even the way they were looking at us do you know what i mean like the vibe changed they were worried by this point they know us pretty well because we've just been living there for two weeks so they we see them every day like but they became friends like they were concerned and the doctors were worried and basically they were like, you've got to have an emergency MRI scan the next day. So that night, nothing can compare to that night. The most difficult night of our lives by far. Nothing can compare. Like we prayed and cried for hours. Literally. You know, when you're crying so much, you're like, where are these tears coming from? Like, wh- how am I still crying? Like five hours later, not just like, uh, just, just flowing because I think by that point it was like we I for me I kept it in I didn't cry for that too apart from in the birth and I didn't cry for those two weeks I held it in get on with it um yeah that was just that night and then the next day early first thing went to the MRI scan and um yeah that was tough I had to put her in this little you know, machinery and whatnot and go back to the room and just wait, basically. Like, I think the doctors thought it might have been like a brain tumour or something like that. So, you know, at that moment, we're just waiting, thinking, 
you know, what's the rest, what's the rest of our lives going to be like? Basically, like, you know, this news is pretty, is a pretty important news we're about to get. And then the doctor just ran through. Like, I remember they would never knock. They just burst through the door, basically. <laughs> there was times I was in my boxer shorts having a shower. The doctor just bursting in. <laughs> okay. No privacy. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever. We're family now. But yeah, came bursting through the door. And I remember she just ran out to us like this. Like, like we're celebrating, like, like Sterling's goal in, in the Euros. It was like that. It came out to us celebrating. It hugged us. And she's like, oh, I don't have to worry. It's just like bone structure. It's fine. It's fine. And we were just like, oh my gosh. Like that feeling, that elation. Yeah. And um, just hugging the, 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 the nurse, you know. And yeah, at that point, they, they got to know us. So I think they were on that emotional journey with us. So when they got the news, they were wow. genuinely happy. This wasn't like a professional. This was like a human being. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Who was genuinely happy for people, good people that they'd met. Um. So yes, yeah, so we stayed a couple of more days just to make sure it was okay, and then and then uh, and you got to go home. We got to go home, yeah, and that was a mad moment. But I think that's when the the next <laughs> the next phase of it started. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the next phase, mate. Tell us about the next phase. Yes, yeah, so the next phase was like you know getting home, and as soon as we left the the hospital, like we were paranoid. Do you know what I mean? Like even though that moment had passed in our minds. We were still kind of there. Yeah, you're like, on tenterhooks now. Yeah, we were just paranoid about everything. And uh, I remember, it was funny actually, because when we were about to leave, Snelly, my wife, was like, can you check our baby's temperature? And I checked the temperature in the room. And then we got out to the reception to say goodbye. And then my wife was like, can you check the temperature again? And they were like, it's okay, we checked it 10 minutes ago. She's like, can you check it again? And I checked it again, it was the same temperature. Like, But you could see the anxiousness, right? Like, And we went went home and I had a few days left at home of my paternity leave and I was back to work full time um and I guess you know what I did I just threw myself into work into parenting and started music for fatherhood I started writing after a couple of months not about what happened just you know keeping myself busy I threw myself into everything like I was just keeping busy and I think Threw myself into parenting, you know, I'd go, go work and come home and just do everything around now. I was like a madman. I'll come home, clean, cook, like, have my daughter, like, and I think part of that was knowing that my wife, she ended up getting diagnosed with postnatal anxiety, so knowing that she was struggling, um, but also as a way, I think, of me not, not processing what had happened, really, and trying to block it all out and just kind of get on with it. So, um, yeah, so that, so that, that kind of went on for a few months, to be honest. And, and uh, yeah, we didn't really leave the house a lot in those first few months. It was winter. And I think because we were just so paranoid, like we were like literally in A&E like every week for about the first two, for about the first three months, I think we were in A&E, not every week. I think we were about like eight, nine, eight or nine times we went to A&E, literally, because we were just so worried. Every time she had a, like had a temperature once or there was various different things. We were just so worried. So like three o'clock in the morning, we'll just be in A&E, like literally. And you think other things our parents would be like, oh, I'll be fine. You know, for us, because we were so anxious and paranoid, every little thing, we'd go to the hospital. <laughs> I remember like being at work and then like, how are you? It's like, oh, yeah, I was in the hospital last night at 3am. Like, you know, and they're like, oh, why? And like, you know. But yeah, so basically that, that lasted for a few months. Um, 
And I felt like I was doing okay. I felt like I was all right. I remember feeling okay, to be honest. Like, I was, I didn't process what had happened, but I was all right. And then basically what happened after a few months, my daughter had a, um, she's got a wheat allergy, quite a bad wheat allergy. Um, she's got an EpiPen now and stuff like that. But obviously we didn't know that at the time. We gave her wheat mix. And um, I remember we'd gone, we'd, gone to, we'd gone out on Sunday, gone to Nando's, my favourite restaurant. <laughs> um <laughs> So, so yeah, so we've gone there and gone home and, and, and gave my daughter some wheat effects before bed. And then we went into the living room and literally within like two minutes, her face had just doubled in size. Wow. Her eyes are like literally, you know, like you see a rugby player that's been beaten up or, or like a yeah. wrestler that's been beaten or a boxer. It was like that. Her eyes were swelled over. Her face was like, it's out of the blue. And we're like, what is going on? So we called the, the ambulance, rushed the hospital. I remember that day was crazy because... That day, there was, it was quite a hot day. And uh, apparently, I only found out after, but there was a death in the A&E that day. So it was, it was mad. There was, there was like pregnant women sitting on the floor at Wits Cross Hospital. It was mad. But they prioritised us. They took us through. We walked through all these people. They gave us a room and a bed and then started treating my daughter. And like, again, like in the hospital experience, you know it's serious. When you get prioritised and you get special people coming to see you. Allergic reaction for uh, Yeah, minor. That's, yeah. That's big. Serious. So, and for me at that point, that was just a trigger, man. Like, all the stuff I hadn't dealt with, it all just came back. And the months after that, like, I didn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. Couldn't sleep. I was just up all night. If I slept, I would have nightmares, or I'd be scared I would have a nightmare. Um, I was having flashbacks about birth, uh, just emotional. Like I think I said in that BBC piece, you know, there was one time I was on, I was on the train, just in tears, just crying. Like I just didn't know what was going on. And I think what happened was, at the time, because I didn't know what was going on, the worry of it made it even worse. So I'm thinking, why, why don't I feel myself? Why can't I communicate properly? Why am I crying for no reason? Why am I worried? Why can't I sleep? Like, I didn't know what was going on. So then that All big flags it... now that you look back. Exactly. And yeah, so that lasted for maybe like, yeah, a good, a good few months, the severe symptoms. And then um, over time, kind of, now, I remember we went on holiday to Cambridge and I remember sitting down at the river thinking, okay, cool, I'm starting to feel a little bit better. I'm starting to feel a little bit more myself and I was able to kind of reflect on a little bit of what happened and stuff like that. And that was a, that was a important, but it was only a break. I think we went for like a week or something, but I remember it was really hot. And um, yeah, I could slow down and kind of think about what was going on and whatnot. And over time, yeah, I started to process it. And over time, I started feeling a little bit more myself and whatnot. Um, so at that time, I didn't, I didn't actually get, get any. I didn't think at that point to go and seek help. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Even though, like, my wife had got counselling for postnatal anxiety earlier on, I never in my mind thought, oh, maybe I should, like, you know, talk to someone about, <laughs> professional about this, which is crazy now. But a lot of men do it. Like, yesterday, we recorded a podcast about birth trauma. And the dads were saying the same thing. Yeah. Literally, we, we yeah we were recording a podcast about trauma yesterday as well, and some of the same things. Some of the same things were coming up about um, 
not dealing with it, um, ignoring it, throwing themselves into other things, or, or some, a lot of the things that you've mentioned here today that you exhibited. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. So yeah, so um, the months go by and then I started to feel like myself a little bit more and I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm kind of getting back to myself and whatnot. But at the same time, thinking about the birth is very difficult. And um, I remember talking to, so at this point, I'm doing Music Football Fatherhood now. And there was, there was a, a lady called Anna who started a platform around mental health um, for parents, mainly for mums. And she wants to interview me for it as a magazine and she wants to do an interview with me and stuff like that. And we met. And then she was asking about the birth and like, I couldn't even talk about it. Like I'm talking about it now. Do you know what I mean? Like without, she could see that clearly. <laughs> it was emotional. It was emotional. So she, she recommended that I kind of um, speak to someone who she was working with who's a birth trauma specialist and whatnot. And um, yeah, we had that conversation and I told her about what had happened and and the aftermath and what I was feeling and experiencing and she was like yeah it sounds like basically you had PTSD and and um and that was the first time you you heard and knew what you'd been going through mm, yeah yeah and uh yeah so I spoke to her and whatnot and that was cool but at that point I, I started to I was feeling a little bit Better anyway, I was on kind of coming out on the other end. I was more myself and I was cool. Listen, before I let you go, I want to touch upon uh, Music Football Fatherhood and uh, all the work that you're doing there and and how it, just briefly, how it kind of came about and grew out of, out of what you were going through and how you were letting it out by writing blog posts and stuff. When was it that you realised, actually, this is really important, Music Football Fatherhood? Because it started with just blog posts? Yeah, yeah. It was just like ElliotRay.com at the very beginning. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just writing. I didn't know anything about like SEO or anything like that. I was just literally writing on WordPress. And then um, after, after a few months, I was like, okay, actually, do you know what? I'm going to... I was just like, what do I like about life? What do I love? And, you know, music, football, fatherhood was just my passion. So it was, it was very kind of selfish at the beginning. It was very much like, what would I like to see? As a new dad who used to be in a band, who loves football, loves fatherhood, like, what would I like to see? And it was very much just like that, creating something that I wanted for myself, basically. Um, and then, like, yeah, a couple of dads got involved and started writing and joined the, the kind of team, which was cool. And then, yeah, late, later on, I kind of thought, okay, this, is, this could be something. So kind of tried to rebrand, um, got Canva, which is an online tool and just did a little logo and got wordpress.org and you know, made it a little bit more professional. And then the following year, so we're in 2017 now, summer, I was, um, me and my wife went kind of week off and we were in Harrow in a coffee shop. And uh, I remember, just, I think I was like writing a press release and it wasn't really working. And then I think my wife was like, Snelly, she was like, why don't you just write about like your experiences or whatnot of being a black dad and like that and you know at, at that point I was like I worked part-time I did compressed hours I had my daughter a lot basically so I was going to like baby groups with her and whatnot and just it was quite funny actually just being sometimes the only man the only black man at the baby groups and what that experience was like and whatnot so I kind of wrote a piece about that basically and like, I, I, I believe in God I'm a Christian and I literally feel like God wrote that article for me because it took about five minutes 
I this even... is the I'm I'm a young married professional black father and I don't exist piece yeah. that went viral. Yeah, I literally wrote it in like five minutes. I don't remember writing it. I don't I don't remember, consciously remember. I, I, remember, I, don't, I remember sit down and writing it, but I don't consciously remember thinking about it. Anyway, so my wife was like, um, read it, it's like, oh, that's great. Like, you sent, she sent it to Independent. I was like, okay, how do I do that? <laughs> so she found, she found the editor's email address on Twitter and I emailed. And then within an hour, they were like, it's great. Can we put it on the internet, on, on their website? And I'm like, cool. So within like, from me finishing writing it, I would say about two hours later, it was up on the website. And over the next day, it was the most, second most viewed article on their website, on the Independent's website. Wow. Um, it was second to a Brexit Trump article. <laughs> <laughs> Damn Brexit. But anyway, so um, yeah, it was the, it was the second most viewed article, and I think that was like the real starting point. You know, that's when um, it I got seven, shared seventeen thousand times, which maybe now is not so much, but in two thousand seventeen, that was quite a lot in like a day and a half. And um, after that, yeah, we the team built. I think we then got a team of like. 10 and then we did a bbc feature and they were like this is the mum's net for dads that was a couple months later and then the team grew and i think we had a team like 25 at that point wow 17 yeah um so i was like getting a writing team on board and whatnot but yeah at that point it's a weird one because i wasn't ready for that level of attention but then um after that i kind of started to take it more seriously really and even though i was working hard on it i kind of thought okay if i want to make this a thing that i want to do I need to think about how it's going to work. So yeah, took some time just to do that basically um, and really try and figure out exactly what we are trying to do. Who, what kind of dad do we want to engage with? How are we going to engage with them? What, what do we believe in? And that's taken a while to really kind of crystallize and get very focused. And I feel like it's taken a while, but now I'm very clear about what we stand for yeah so you're doing amazing work you're doing really amazing work and it's it's great to see and it's great to share this space with you as dad vengers because we're of a similar mindset and we're, we're trying to do this similar thing for dad so yeah it's good it's good to be around good people like you exactly and i think um like it's so good that we can work together you know because i think sometimes people would see people doing similar things and be like oh that's competition and i think when you look at the amount of platforms there are for mums there's exactly. not that many platforms for dads and there's exactly. million, there's millions of dads. Listen, one question before you go. We ask all of our guests and it's the big one. This is it. If you could have a dad superpower, what would it be and why? <sighs> oh, what would it be? What would it be? Go on, let's see what you got. <laughs> so do you know what? It might sound soppy or weird, but if I had the power to make my daughter happy all the time, like... Good one. Sometimes I see her... Basically, something quite bad happened. My, my father-in-law died in February. And my daughter, my daughter grieved. And seeing her grieve was so tough. Like, people were like, she's five, she won't get it. Like, she was grieving. She was crying all night. She was sad at school. And all I wanted to do was like, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be content. You know, when your children, your kids are content and happy. You're just like, it's all cool. You know, just be happy. Like, so my one, one of my superpowers would be like, you know, she's still going through a bit of that as well. Like, she's still finding it tough. So one superpower would be like, look, just, you just be happy. If I had the power to do that, that'd be cool. Listen, Elliot, 
thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, you're doing amazing work. Keep it up and let's catch up soon. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Elliot, a dad doing important things, supporting the fatherhood community and took time out to come here and speak to us about his whole situation, learning about his parents, learning about the things he went through, the trauma at birth. Really thankful because it's an important story that we all need to hear. So there you have it, another fantastic episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have time, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode or of the series as a whole. And don't forget, you can subscribe or follow using your preferred podcast platform to be first to hear the episodes. If you'd like to find out more about Dadvengers, head to dadvengers.com where you can find out more information about our live chats, about our meetups, quizzes, blog posts, and more. This has been the Dadvengers podcast, sponsored by Tonka, because being tough is all about getting out and playing. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.